Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike Indivina. Let's get started. Hey, welcome to the Master Mix Podcast. My name is Mike Navina, and thank you so much for being here today. My guest in today's episode is Lance Prince, who is an amazing engineer out of Australia who focuses primarily on a lot of the heavier metalcore stuff. And he's worked with bands like Alpha Wolf, Dealer, Darknet, and a whole bunch of other great bands. And the guy's absolutely crushing it. His guitar tones are so good. And just the, the heaviness and fullness of his mixes are, is really exciting. And I think when you listen to this interview, you're going to see that like he's a guy who pays attention to the little details and the results really show for themselves. He also has a really interesting approach to how he processes a bunch of his tracks. And we get into that in this interview. And not only that, but he also provided a lot of details as well. So this is something that I think you're going to be able to listen to this interview and learn a lot from what he has to talk about. And you're going to be able to apply this very easily to your own mixes. So let's not waste any more time. Let's just jump right into the interview. Lance Prince, thank you so much for being on the Master Mix podcast. How you doing, man? Good. Thank you for having me. Yeah, man, for sure. So for people who might not know about your history and your background, can you give us a little bit of that story on how you got into production and audio work and, you know, what's your background? So I started, like, writing music in my teens in uh, Guitar Pro. I started playing guitar when I was, like, 12 or something, playing, like, ACDC and all that sort of basic crap. But um, as I got a bit older, I got more into metal and stuff. Sort of started out with like Pantera and stuff and then went to Kill Switch Engage and Parkway. It's like the standard trajectory of everyone in like the late 2000s, pretty standard. So I just kept on playing guitar, doing that. And then I wanted to make my own songs. So I was writing riffs in Guitar Pro or playing them on guitar, writing them down. And I would like export those sounds and listen to them in iTunes or whatever. And it sounded garbage. You know, it, it served the purpose, but um, I wanted to delve into it further. So I got, I think it was like a early version of Nuendo, which is like Cubase, but basic beginner stuff. I just started tracking. I just started doing stuff and had no idea. Just followed YouTube videos and tutorials and everything sounded, you know, very garbage, as you would expect. <laughs> I think I put like a BBE Sonic Maximizer on the master in the early days, just because I knew <laughs> it was something that people used and it was, you know, an esteemed bit of gear. It was some like freeware plug-in too. It was terrible. And then I finished high school and moved down, moved up to the city. I lived in a town that was like three hours from the city or so. And I uh, started doing TAFE for audio engineering at a school called R RMIT. And um, we had to do a work experience part of the course, and you had to do something like 40, 40 hours for that year. And I don't know, I was like, oh, I know absolutely no one. I don't know how I'm going to do this. So I went to a local show that I had started going to, just like, oh, I can't even remember what the bands were on it but just local Melbourne bands. And I just approached the sound guys there and there were a couple of young guys and they were like, yeah, like come to the next show. It's tomorrow. You can chuck some gear in your car and bring it with you because our cars are full. And I was like, yeah, okay, sure thing. 
So I uh, did that and just got my in in audio by just doing that. And I eventually hopped on the desk and, you know, started mixing within a year. And um, the course was still going at that time. And I just like soon realized that the course really wasn't helping me for what I wanted to do. I think it taught me a lot about being technical in Pro Tools specifically, like editing and shortcuts and all that sort of stuff. But it didn't tell me how to record actual things, how to react with people and get the best performance out of them. So I just endeavored by myself to do that ends up being on forums all over facebook and the ultimate metal forum that was a good one and um just recorded myself until things got sounding better and at the same time i had all these relationships with local bands mixing them at live shows and they knew that i would do stuff i would show them stuff and all that and it sort of just progressed from there i ended up getting my first client through the guitarist of Alpha Wolf, Sabian, he sent me to these guys that were in a different state. They got their EP mixed by someone from the US and it kind of sucked. And he was like, oh, do you reckon you could do better? I was like, yeah, I'll give it a shot. And just went from there. It sounded okay for what it was. They were super psyched. And that was that. I just started recording bands and mixing and mastering. That's awesome, man. It's funny that you, you say that like school wasn't quite getting you the the results that you needed right like i feel like that's a very common thing with music schools is that like you know they can only they tend to play it very safe and the real world is always very different than the the school experience right i do credit uh one guy at the school called michael pollard he was a live sound tech and he was like actually actively touring he was a weird dude super wired, super technical, and just he'd look at you and just say stuff, and he'd be like, what Like, what do you mean? You know, you'd <laughs> overthink it just by his tone and how he's talking. And he was just, yeah, he was a real deal. But the other guys in the course, you know, they had, like, jazz backgrounds and stuff like that, and very obviously teachers, you know, like they'd, they'd done their bit in recording and were passing on their knowledge, but they weren't modern in their knowledge yeah it makes sense and it's interesting that you said you kind of you know you left and you started just diving into it on your own and trying to figure out how to get the sounds and you know one of the things that i've always really admired about the work you do is like your guitar tones are awesome and like super tight and everything and uh it makes sense that you're a guitar player so you know <laughs> i think you know do, do you feel like you were just chasing sounds when you were starting to learn this stuff or how like how did you ultimately learn to get the guitar tones like you do well i just yeah i i was definitely chasing sounds when playing guitar for sure but i actually gave it up once i started working with people because they were just better than me you know they're writing better songs and all that sort of stuff but that enabled me to really have a deep dive in what it meant to get a good guitar tone performance and all that and it's like, it's literally like the 10,000 hours thing. You spend all this time doing it and then you'll be great at it. And I, you know, I just recall sitting on the computer, just sifting in Google for any bit of information, trying it and seeing if it was good. And like, as I went and did that and more information came out, I just knew all the techniques and tried them all and knew what worked best. And, um... 
and just like good source turns as well. Like a good DI box was paramount to getting a good reamp turn. Like you cannot get a good one without a good DI. Like it's not worth even trying, in my opinion. Yeah, that's one of those things that a lot of people tend to overlook. You know, they just think eh, DI is a DI, but there's there's quite a difference you can get out of them. Absolutely. Like people use the Axe Effects or the Camper as a DI. And it's like, oh, yeah, that's cool. Like it can do that, but they are both terrible. <laughs> like <laughs> compare them to an actual DI box and it's a night and day difference. Which one do you use? I had a Countryman Type 85 for I think like six years. And that was like, blew everything out of the water that I was dealing with, like Kemper and Axe Effects and radial DIs and stuff like that. That just smashed them. Like, it was like a full frequency spectrum, sounded good, all the high end, no blanket over it. And um, then I was using, I think it's called the, whatever the yellow reamp box is by radial, I was using that. And, like, they both worked for a good amount of time, but I have now recently upgraded to a Creation Audio MW1, which is absolutely the be-all, end-all. Like, you cannot find better. That's awesome. <laughs> so, tell me a little bit about uh, your studio setup, then. Like, what kind of equipment are you using these days? Obviously, you got that DI, but... <laughs> yeah, um, I just work out of a room in my house. I've uh, just got a Motu 624 linked with AVB to an ultralight to give me a few more ins and outs. I recently picked up a Distressor and a Clark Technic 76, which is like super budget, but uh, super fun. <laughs> it's actually very sick. I mean, there I got some Master Bus stuff, a TC Finalizer and a Smart C2. And um, yeah, that's about it. I'd say a lot of stuff that I do is definitely in the plug-in realm with processing stuff. I've got a couple of guitar amps that I bust out for reamps all the time. But yeah, I find myself mixing more now rather than tracking. I used to track a lot more a couple of years ago, but now I mix a lot. So I've just prioritized mixing and mastering gear rather than recording. Yeah, it makes sense. In terms of the um, in-the-box stuff versus you know, using your hardware gear, how do you decide when you're going to use your hardware gear? Or is that kind of just a staple of your chain that you always have certain pieces on? No, I've got criteria for it, for sure. I, if if something's programmed drums, it usually doesn't get the master bus treatment, just because I can't justify, you know, spending that time bouncing down. Bouncing stems takes forever. You've got to <laughs> listen to the song, like, for a whole day, you know, to bounce it all down. But, I mean, it's not to say that the plug-in stuff still doesn't sound good. Like, I, I wouldn't tell someone and they wouldn't know, you know. But um, when I've gone through the effort to track drums and all that, I just, I get freaky. Like, I try stuff and do new things. But program drums, you know, I, I can pick it out straight away. It just sounds so similar to me. And I hate it, to be honest. <laughs> I hate dealing with it. But it's a thing, you know, people want to get their music out there. They don't have the budget. And that's fine. Yeah, for sure. It's funny you kind of mentioned that, like, you know, people wouldn't be able to tell the difference between the plugins and the hardware. And, you know, I, I think that that's a really good point because the, the people that are listening to this are just listening to a song. They don't, they, you know, they don't care about what gear you used, right? So if it sounds good, it is good. And, you know, I think it's only 
us as engineers that get really fixated on those little details and then like the the one percent difference that the hardware makes sometimes yeah. right yeah <laughs> it's like it's like a hobby for me that part of it you know i don't i don't do anything else but my work so having tools to play with for my own benefit because that's really what it is i'm just fiddling around and having fun you know like that's good <laughs> but <laughs> other people don't need to know about that they just need to get their mix sounding good and get the song out i mean it's not to say that this gear hasn't made what i do better i definitely think it does make stuff better it makes it different also like there's constant movement with analog gear and like the way you use it and yeah it's definitely something to be desired but it's got a time and a place yeah for sure i sometimes joke around with like the bands i work with that i wish that i could just buy a console that was gutted but just had all the knobs and the faders and everything <laughs> just as like, yeah. you know, something to just like keep my hands busy while I'm recording and like make it look impressive. But yeah, <laughs> it's like, it's like the live sound thing where people post a meme and they ask for something more in the fallback or monitor and the dude pretends to do it. It's the yeah. exact same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Which sure. I have done myself for sure. <laughs> yeah. Making it louder. Yeah. I swear. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm helping. You don't need it louder. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I'd love to talk a little bit about your productions. And um, I was wondering, like, when you get involved in producing an album, how involved do you typically get with that? Like, are you getting into the songwriting side of it? Or are you just mainly approaching it from an engineering perspective? What's your approach there? Well, it's always a bit of both. And I, I feel like it depends on how open the band is. Like, you can tell straight away when you walk into doing sessions with a band, whether they're going to listen to you or just back themselves on it. And as much as you try and pry to change something, you know, they might not. So that, that like first interaction definitely dictates how it's going to be afterwards. But, um, usually, you know, like bands are receptive and they let you voice your opinion and change stuff accordingly. And like, I mean, there's always that stage in recording a record within like the first week where you go through and do all that. Like I've done that with Alpha Wolf stuff. With our Polaris last year, we did a whole week worth of that before we actually tracked anything. Um, and it does really help. Like, it can't be understated at all. You know, like, the five people working on the songs don't have an outside opinion. And they're, they're biased, for sure. So, they need someone to come in and tell them what's what, what's good, what's bad. And then you have a discussion from there. But... um. There has been some albums where I've just like taken on the engineer role, known that it's not my place to say anything or change anything. And those albums usually happen very fast. <laughs> but the ones where you produce and engineer, it always take the longest for sure. Well, you, you, you tend to put a lot more into it, right? When you're, when you're all in. Well, you're involved. Yeah. Like the engineering side of it is more of a job. Whereas the production is obviously cre creativity and investment as well. For sure. When you're doing those pre-production sessions, what kind of stuff are you typically listening for in the songs? Just overall structure, for sure. Whether parts are that sick or not, you know, like you can tell straight away when a part's not that strong against the rest of the song. And just ironing all that sort of stuff out. It's not it's not as complicated as it, as it sounds at all. Like, it's just spending hours changing stuff and working out what fits best. 
And if you can do that even, you know, maybe the band has nothing left in the tank and nothing left to give and you just abandon the pr- like producing of it all together and just go with what it is. For sure. Know? Yeah, I find that a lot of times w- with pre-production stuff, you know, it's really just a matter of making sure that everyone in the band knows what everyone else is doing so that, you know, the parts can be as tight as they can be. Because sometimes, sometimes bands are just jamming in a really loud room and they can't hear anything, you know. So, so that, like, no, they don't even know how the song goes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, you always get the, like the two guitar players that play completely different strumming patterns, and you know the bass and oh, kick. I, I see it. I see it all the time, <laughs> especially after the album's recorded, and then we go on tour, and they do the rehearsal on the first day or whatever. And there's always one guy getting grilled for playing it completely wrong because he was <laughs> never there to do it. Just doesn't know it. <laughs> Very funny. Yeah. Well, that's interesting that you put that you say it like that. Do do you find that you? I always find that bands typically have like one guitar player that's like the strongest of the two, or however many are there. Do you typically get like the one strong guy to record all the parts, or you still give everyone their fair chance? I mean, like leads are the exception. Some people are better at playing leads than other people. Some people are just much more practiced in that. But rhythm playing is truly a one-person endeavor, for sure. And you would find that with most bands anyway, that there is is really one guy writing the bulk of the music, and he is also the one guy that records the bulk of the music. Hmm. Yeah, it's so true. I, I do find that whenever I try to... Whenever I try to record two guitarists playing rhythm tracks, they it's inevitably a mess, because, like they're not playing the same riffs or they're not playing the same same strumming pattern so it's just way better to have the one guy who's strongest yeah and like in all things audio every product ever is striving for consistency so why try and change that you know like there's stuff like the ever tune that keeps your guitar in tune like indefinitely why would i add another guy to impart his different character on the thing that I'm trying to keep consistent. Like it doesn't make sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Very, very true. <laughs> so then, so then in your opinion, what makes a good song in the end after you've gone through all this pre-production stuff, like what are you ultimately looking for in the song? Well, it just needs to make you feel something really like, I mean, even if it's a heavy song, if it just makes you feel pissed off or the breakdowns just, you know, massive, that's the bit. That's what matters and that's what you need to, like, bring out in the song. But, like, songs that just coast along and don't really have any vibe or anything like that, those are the things that need to be changed for sure. But I find that these days bands have such a high standard that they've got all the necessary things in a song before they even get to recording. Like, everyone now is so much more educated than what they would have been 10 years ago on every part of making music absolutely well a lot of them are demoing their own material as well so they're well yeah that's it they've already done they've already gone through that themselves to figure out what's the best part and how to make it the best overall for sure so then what are some of the common mistakes or things that you would be correcting in pre-production what do you typically find a lot of bands rip off a lot of other bands. <laughs> not not like directly, but, you know, like you, you go, oh, that's a this band part, you know. And when they don't listen to you and you, they keep that in there, that's like death sentence for me straight away. That's just like, come on, man. You can try better. <laughs> for real. you yeah. got to be yourself. And it's funny, like, when most of my 
most popular stuff comes out, like gets released, like Alpha Wolf and Dealer and all that stuff, I have so many people hit me up about mixing and mastering. They never go through with it. It never happens. But you listen to the demos and it's just straight rip-offs of this most popular band that you've put out. And you're just like, how can I let this slide? Like, <laughs> how can you come to me and think I will be serious about your project when I've heard this before? I've recorded it before. Like, it's so funny. But I think that's also coming to an image thing as well. It's kind of like the Rise core bands, you know, like 10 years ago that were all fringe and played the same shotgun breakdown in each one of their bands it was more of an image and a cell rather than actually making the music for sure yeah it's it's funny because like there's two schools of thought when it comes to the uh the sound alike bands you know like some people will write songs that sound like a, a hit song so that like you know it almost is a little catchier because people are yeah, like a familiar yeah. thing and then there's the bands that just straight rip it off and you know yeah. I mean, there's definitely like tips and tricks to get out of other bands. Absolutely. But like, you've got to put your own spin on it f- for it to be convincing and for people to not go, oh, that's kind of like this song that I've heard before. Because as soon as that happens, it loses credibility. It's just like, oh, yeah, that's what you did. I see what you did there. That's not sneaky. Like, that's very obvious. <laughs> yeah. My my wife hates it because I have, like, this tendency to, I can always pick out what a song sounds like, you know, like the other song that they ripped off, and I'll always point it out yeah, to her. Yeah, I'll yeah. be like, oh, yeah, this is, like, this is that other <laughs> song, wrong. you know? Yeah, this is that one. And she's like, can I just enjoy the music? Like, <laughs> No, nah, that's the price to pay for doing this. You can't listen to music like you did before you started audio yeah (laughs) no way (laughs) for sure one question i was curious to to get your opinion on is that a lot of the bands you work on tend to have really low tuning and with low tuning one of the big issues that a lot of mixing engineers face is that the guitars and the bass tend to fight each other and you know in terms of getting the clarity and getting them to work with each other that can be a pretty tricky thing because they're all fighting for those low low tones do you have any tips on getting those things to work together in a mix yeah i think you've got to treat guitars as guitars and bass as bass as you would normally with a higher tuning i think people overcomplicate it and think that just because it's a lower tuning, it's got to occupy a lower register. It doesn't. It's the same thing. Like in the terms of frequencies with guitar low end, when you even drop something an octave from like 200 hertz, that's just to 100 hertz. And that's not that far. You know, like it's not, it's really not that bad. So trying to accentuate anything below, it's like that's not what you're meant to be boosting. That's not where that tuning sits but even so you also need to get creative with you know making especially bass high end sort of like fit in a different way whereas like high tuning bass would just be as clanky as it would be high pitched as and it almost sound like a guitar in the center of the image but with the lower tunings that just sounds terrible in my opinion so you need to shift it lower like the midpoint the frequency that you actually hear, you need to shift it lower. But myself, I don't find much trouble doing it. I think it's just because I've always been in low tunings, just the standard thing that I do just works. 
Like it's like a learned behavior to carve it in a certain way where you can hear it all. But um, yeah, it, it takes a lot of, it takes a lot of mucking around with EQ and stuff for sure. And like some people overcomplicate it and it's just a level thing. You've just got to turn it up. <laughs> like if something's buried, it's because it's quiet. Just turn it up. <laughs> and if something weird happens after you've turned it up, then that's the spot that you need to change. You know, like if you hear too many low mids, you just need to duck that in the EQ. Leave it where it is volume wise because you can hear it now. I love that. It's such a simple approach, but it makes sense to do it that way. It is. Like, why is this thing buried? It's because it's quiet. You know, like, it's in the definition. The fix is in in what you just said. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think as engineers, we, we want to overcomplicate it and we want to add EQ or something to it because we think that that's the move. But sometimes it's just volume. Which well, it's just thing. like, yeah. And even at live shows, like, that's what I learned in all my touring. I was just like, I don't have all these tricks that I can pull in the studio. I've just got EQ and comp on every channel and a volume fader. Why can't I hear something? It's just because it's quiet. So I just turn it up. <laughs> it's as simple as that. It's interesting with your live background too, because I know with my experience in live sound, it's so different than being in the studio because you have to act real quick. And sometimes that forces you to make like the quick fix or like the broad move with EQ or something like that, right? So I think when you apply that kind of same mentality to the studio world, it can really make a big difference. Yeah, like you can get stuff done pretty quickly and you know what to look for also. Like I wouldn't have known the speed of working if I hadn't done live sound. Like, and it's not, it's not like a disservice to anyone. Like you just work fast. And that's it. But you know exactly what to do when you do it and go to do it. You know exactly what you need to do. I mean, like at a show, especially for my first three years or so in live sound, we had no sound checks. I had 10 to 15 minutes to pull the mix and the band starts playing. And like, I just dialed that in straight up. I just like worked hard to make that the quickest thing it could be. And, like, I could set up the desk from scratch in five minutes and I could literally just press unmute on every channel and it would be acceptable. So, it just took a lot of trial and error in that way. And that being applied to the studio, my troubleshooting is just off the chain. Like, I know what's wrong straight away. I wouldn't have learned that otherwise. No way. Yeah. It's that, you know, it got me thinking about it too because you're right, like, you often, as a live sound engineer, you don't have time and you have to get, you have to get that mix done in the first 30 seconds of the first song. And so like, what's that process look like for you, right? Like you're, you're, you're throwing up volumes or you're throwing up your faders and you're finding like the level balance first and foremost, and then you start crazy. to fine tune, right? <laughs> yeah. And you're not like, you are completely tunnel vision to anyone talking to you absolutely had people yell at me and i was like i just didn't hear that like i'm just <laughs> on this desk making this happen right now like <laughs> yeah i enjoy it though it's as, as stressful as it is that was also the fun of it for sure but it's really cool to, to think about how you're 
like what your workflow is in the live sound realm and then how that applies to the studio because yeah it is those broad strokes it's getting the levels up first and foremost like that's kind of almost like phase one of of your mix and then you know then you tweak from there and do your eq and compression like you would in the live setting whereas a lot of people have the approach of like well i'm going to start with the kick drum only and I'm going to solo this and then I'll add my compression EQ here and then I'll move on to the snare and do that. And it's like, you don't have time to do that in the live world. So why, you know, and, and like you, the thing with live sound is that you're working in the context of the mix. You're listening to everything all at once. So, you know, when it comes to the studio, you should be applying it the same way as opposed to getting super granular and like isolating individual tracks. Right. Well, that's that's also the funny thing about it. I've got to do the exact opposite of what you just said. I dial the kick first. Interesting. Straight away. And that's done in like 15 seconds. Like that is quick. All I need is like three kick hits from the drummer at the show and it's done. <laughs> like I know, like I've already pre-planned it all. I'm already going, you know, before I've even heard it, I know what I need to do. Because that's another thing as well with live sound is how different things can be and how they are actually not that different. Like a different kick drum with the same microphone still fits the same EQ spectrum that you did with another kick drum. Like, it's not that different. So, it's, yeah. I mean, I approach studio and live the same way, but studio is definitely way longer spent on the individual thing. (laughs) But, yeah. I also find that starting that way live, finishing one thing and going to the next, makes me not get confused. It makes me not cluttered. It makes me know that that piece of the thing is done. Like, I haven't forgot to gate it. I haven't forgot to send it to reverb or anything like that, which can so easily happen in a live setting. Because you can't, you can't double check. You've just got to go on to the next thing. So, if you finish that whole fader, like that whole channel, there's no worries after it. Yeah, you just have your checklist of what you're doing or what you're going to yeah. do that track. And it's even become a thing where I've memorized all all my gains, where I need to have all my drums, where the gain needs to be set for them to come into the right level for me, all my vocals and all that stuff. So once I've like memorized those things over the period of a few years, that even makes dialing just so quick. I can just set that up and it's fine. I know it's not going to clip. I know it's not going to be too too quiet. I mean, obviously, there's exceptions to the rule. And I would see that as I'm working on the channel and I would adjust it. But yeah, it's it's much more calculated than one would think. It's, it's very interesting. Another question that I had about dealing with uh, low tuned instruments is that in addition to the, like the bass and guitar kind of fighting for a lot of the same space, kick drum is also another thing that a lot of people tend to really struggle with because, you know, they're not sure how to get the kick drum to still feel full and you know, present in the mix. So do you have any tips for, uh, like, what's your typical approach for getting a kick to fit in the context of a heavier mix? Less high-end EQ and more attack. (laughs) I can't, like, there's some mixes I don't even boost high-end. Like, my high-end is literally coming from the compressor just destroying the kick drum. Like, the if you think about it, transient is, you know, it's a peak, but that peak also has frequency to it. So the harder you compress it, the more frequency you're putting to that peak in a way. I mean, it's also dependent on what compressor you use as well. Some won't add the frequency compared to others, and then you would need to add EQ. But like, 
you know, you see videos on YouTube or people commenting on forums saying they boosted 12 dB at 8K. It's like, no, you're going to kill your ears doing that. That sucks. Like, and it sounds bad. It just sounds like it's floating above everything. Like, I don't like that at all. And like doing stuff dynamically to fit it in just like creates more movement overall and it just makes it more exciting in the end. It's funny to hear you say that because, you know, I I tend to be in that 8K group where like I'll boost a lot of the top end, right? <laughs> yeah. But but you're right. I mean, a, a big part of something like a kick drum is defining the point and like the, that transient. So, you know, the fact that you're doing it with compression is is pretty cool because, you know, that it is a it is a tone shaper it is a, a an envelope shaper as well right so it's kind of everything all in one one compressor or one piece of gear and then you can get stuff like jst transify which is a multi-band transient designer and then like using any knob on that in a given frequency spectrum is eq but it's dynamic and like it's more it's more exaggerated than a dynamic eq you know, it's a transient designer. It does a different thing. And that is like a super useful tool for doing all of that stuff as well. But the problem with also adding a tack to everything to make it fit in is that your master can't be conventional. It cannot, you know, be EQ with one limiter. You have to clip the shit out of it because those, those peaks are huge. <laughs> like if you turn your master off, and listen to the mix without it on, it sounds retarded. Like the snare is like 20 dB too loud. The kick is super pokey. But when you turn the master on and just chop all that off, it's just there. It's so it's so hard to explain. And like, if you were to mix that way without a master on, I always mix with my master on, you would never end up there. You know, like the snare would never be like that. The kick would never be like that. So it's a whole it's a whole different way of doing it altogether. So when you're talking about having your master on, you're referring to your master bus compressors, right? I'd say my master bus compressors are more of just a mix bus thing. It's just the vibe, you know. Um, but my master is actually just a series of clippers and limiters, and maybe an EQ before all that, just to bring it up to level. Like in my opinion, mastering is kind of a sham, you know. Like there's dudes who a real big on it you know they've got the big expensive gear they're really good at what they do but they're also mastering mixes that are kind of static in their dynamic they're not like stuff's not poking out or anything like that it's pretty chilled and then that stuff's easy to master you just turn it into it and fix stuff with eq like it's not it's not over complicated there is things that they do that are sicker than what I would do, you know, like creative things and stuff like that. I'm not a mastering engineer, but the way I mix and how a lot of people mix modern music is super smacky. So it needs to just be destroyed at the end because to listen to that without the master, it just hurts. It's not nice at all. <laughs> so then, but you would never, you would never mix that way if you had the master off. You would never make it like that. It's like this thing, like this combination that has cooked up over time that creates a whole different sound of a mix. Like it's different. Yeah. So then in terms of your your signal chain, is it typically that you're 
you know, compressing, let's, let's talk about kick drum for now. Uh, you know, you're compressing a kick drum and then applying maybe some transient designer to it. And then you're applying a limiter or a clipper after the fact. Is that kind of like a typical kick chain? I sort of go with kick. It's like EQ, compressor. I do some multiband compression to the low end to make the low end a bit more attacky, which is super cool. Um, I might do a video on that one day because I haven't seen anyone do that before and it does make stuff more impactful. But um, anyway, and then I just send it to parallel compression as well and that's the kick done. Like, I don't need to do anything about that. But the parallel compression is also where a lot of the attack comes in as well. And I like to treat all those things, like all the peaks, I like to get rid of them on the master in a series stage so i'll clip it a little bit with one clipper and then i'll clip it a little bit with the next one and by the end of it the peak's kind of gone and it's just a limiter doing normal limiter stuff on the end but with the snare i do clip it because that is you know it's pokey just by design so i clip the snare channel but yeah the parallel compression brings up a lot of exaggerated transients that i just clip on the master Sometimes a mix might need it before, like sometimes when I put my mix bus compressor on, the transients are too hot, they're clipping the mix bus compressor or the output of my interface, so I need to trim it there and keep going, but that's rare. When that's happening, I know I've done something wrong, like something's not leveled correctly, like that's just too much, but yeah. Yeah. So typically how much clipping are you doing then after the fact? I would say it's at least 10 dB. Oh, wow. But you, it, it needs, like, it's a context thing. Like, my whole band, like the guitar, fucking drums and vocals, they're not near that clip. It's just the drums that are at that clip. Guitar, bass, and vocals, like, don't get clipped. So it's, it's just, it's not detrimental to those parts of the mix it's just detrimental to the snare and the kick but that's a sound that people like anyway you know like people clip on channels all the time so you don't hear it and go oh you know like that's too clipped it's just like you don't even notice it's just a thing that people do and so your your goal with the clipping is ultimately just to give it the transient sound but bring up all of that body and everything in there as well right it's the transient sound but without the transient dynamic like, it's not going to overload, you know, it's not going to pump. It's not going to do any of that because it's just clipped. But if I used a series of limiters, the release and the attack would then pump and it would sound bad. It wouldn't sound good at all. But the fact that it's just instant makes it completely transparent. I've got this snare that's just, like, hit, like, the hardest you've ever heard it. But I don't have any of these artifacts that are related to processing a snare like that. And it's, and it's like a series of clippers is, you know, it's kind of frowned upon to a degree. Like in my audio schooling, that was like big no-no. Like clipping is bad. It's always really bad. But like everything in the world is clipped and limited. Like who cares? <laughs> it's I true, definitely right? don't. Yeah, it's that audio school mentality of like you have to do things the old school way, which is like absolutely zero clipping. But these days, like most modern rock productions, at least, you know, they're destroyed. Are, yeah. 
Yeah, and that's part of like using all the samples and like everyone just like hyper processing everything, right? It's like you need something to mess it up a little bit after the fact to, to make it all even. But it's even like that mentality just doesn't, it doesn't have a place anymore because everyone's in their bedroom making music, doing things in an unconventional way, like tracking, you know, guitar terribly, programming drums. Like no one 20 years ago would have thought that that would be the thing now. And they would hate it like they do hate it now. But that's how it is. And back in the day, they probably thought the same thing once they started adding samples of like electronic sounds. Right. They were probably like, what is this garbage? Like, you know, yeah, use that's real right. Like, right? What, is, what is this client telling me to do? I don't want to do this. I'm a purist. <laughs> like, it's <Yeah>. stupid. <laughs> but that even being like a funny thing is that there's like some people that I've met, older people from that generation that you know, do what I do. They clip shit and stuff like that. There's this, um, there's a studio that I go to to do drums called Range Master Studios. Dope studio, awesome live room. Um, and the owner there, David Carr, we were just nerding out one day. I actually went there to visit the studio to check it out for a potential hire. And we just went in his control room and just started mucking around with stuff. He was just pulling up sessions that he'd done. He's a super chill guy. And he was just showing me all these techniques and stuff. And he was just like clipping with trim plugins and that. I was like, oh, there's a thing for that, but you're already doing it. Like, I don't need to, like, you're, you're up to date. And how did you do that? And he was like, oh, I just, you know, that's what I wanted to do. I just wanted it to clip a little bit. I was like, oh, sick. <laughs> he just <laughs> found that way to make stuff sound better. I was like, yeah, fair enough. Some people still got the ears for it and do the wrong thing, which is the better thing in a lot of cases. That's the thing with audio production, right? Is that there's just so many different ways to kind of get the same results. So, you know, you're, it all, it all comes down to like how well, you know, the gear and, and how well, you know, how to manipulate that gear. And like, it's also to not care. Like a fan isn't going to hear it and go, Oh, that's bad. They don't even give a shit how it sounds. They just like the song or they like the band. But this guy commenting on YouTube saying, Oh, this mix is clipped. Like, who cares, man? <laughs> I don't care. The fan doesn't care. They probably like it better because it's just like hurting them a little bit in a massive part of the song. It's just, a, it's a feeling. It's like, um, I remember years ago, Will Putney mixed uh, a band called Structures, album called Divided By, and it was clipped to shit. It had like clipping artifacts all over it. Bass bombs would just destroy the thing. And I thought it was sick. And I was a fan then. I didn't, like, know audio at all. I would just jam that thing in my car, max volume, and it would just hurt. And I thought it was awesome. And then when I started, like, getting into mixing and all that stuff, I still thought that album was sick just because of that. Like, that clipping was tasteful to me. Like, that made me feel feel like the songs were way more massive than what they actually were. And there was all this hate and all that shit. And even people that I talk to today are like, nah, it's like clipped and that. I'm like, nah, dude, that's the thing. That's why it's sick. And that's why that part just like hits you like a ton of bricks. It's just because it's destroyed. And it's super stylistic. I love it. Yeah, sometimes messing up a sound creates a whole unique character to it in itself, right? It's a whole different thing, yeah. It's like turning up a bass bomb too loud and the mix ducks in a certain way. It's like that can be really cool sometimes. Like for a breakdown or something, just 
turning it up until the mix just goes retarded for that like just that impact is awesome like you just hear it like suck in and you're like oh jesus <laughs> makes you feel <laughs> sick for a brief second i love it yeah you, you have to have that movement in your tracks right just to create that experience well static like static mixes are boring as absolutely boring it can ruin ruin a listening experience for me like if you can just like tell that there's nothing being added like it is just drums bass guitar and vocals and that remains for the whole song nah (laughs) can't dig it (laughs) yeah i'm I'm with you on that like i want to you know as as a listener yeah first and foremost i care about the song is it a good catchy song but like beyond that it's like if i'm gonna listen to this over and over again i want to experience something every time and I love when I find a mix that has all of those automation moves and all of that extra dynamic range that, you know, it keeps me excited every time I listen to it because it's it's not just the same thing that I've heard over and over again. I'm like starting to catch on to these little extra movements that make it more exciting for me. Yeah. I used to be big like a couple of years ago, big into using compression to do automation for me. Like, I wouldn't automate anything. I would just, like, sidechain compressors and shit so things would get out of the way when other moments had happened. And that was, like, that's, like, a different thing to automation altogether. It has a different sound. It has a different effect. And that was really cool for a while for me. But now I do both, like, automation and sidechaining and all that sort of stuff. And it just, it doubles the dynamic of a song. Like, you can't, one or the other isn't, like you can have both and both together is the best ever for sure. And, and the other thing too, is that when you have all that compression kind of doing that automatic, uh, automation stuff, you know, it's like, that's a little uncontrollable and to some degree, right? Like it's going to do what it does based on its settings. Whereas you then going in after the fact and being like, okay, cool. Like it handled this fairly well, but let's do this at this spot. You know, that that's where you get the magic. That's another thing. Like you can have a certain instrument fluctuate within six DB within one part of a song based on those things alone. And it not audibly sound like it's just gone in the background or come to the forefront. It just like moves within it. It's a whole different thing. And when you like train your ear and like make that possible and how you hear that possible, because it takes years. You don't notice that shit for a long time until you like really get into this three-dimensional space within your speakers or your headphones. And then you realize that all this stuff is happening then mixes truly get like they really get the hundred percent worth it's it's where the real business comes in but some like to be honest some songs don't need it some bands don't need that sort of work like is what it is but and it's a lot of effort to like you need to be seriously invested to make all those tiny moves that make a difference at the end like some people aren't. Some people just mix and it sounds good and that's it. Send it off. But all those little moves in that is seriously just like a a thing to do for yourself to know that it's happening. And someone somewhere might pick up on it. And then that's all the gratification that you need for that. <laughs> <laughs> it's true though, but but at the same time, if you were to play your same mix with the automation turned on and off for somebody oh. else. <laughs> like if someone were to listen to it, they might still be thinking like, oh, this is a cool song, but like they're going to 
there's going to be like, <laughs> yeah, what's this little extra thing that like made it more exciting in this in this version, right? Like, you people will pick up on that stuff eventually, no matter how big or how small, it all adds to it. Another thing I really wanted to talk to you about was your guitar tones because I've always found that your guitar tones they sound like you got them sounding super tight. Like you, you have real tight, awesome sounding guitars. And I was wondering if you have any tips for achieving tightness with guitars. Is that something that you typically take care of in the tracking stage, or is it something that relies on a lot of post-processing and editing? How do you, how do you get those tight guitars? I think it definitely depends on the tracking for sure. Like if you've heard my stuff, it's chances you've heard the more popular stuff which is also the stuff that has the bigger budget. You know, I myself might have recorded it or I enlisted someone trusted to record it. And, you know, like these things to get them the way they are, they cost money. Like you need to hire someone to do the job right, to track it perfectly, track it with good gear, edit it and all that. And then you finally get to the tone stage and it's just, it's almost effortless to a degree. Once you know how to mic up an amp and a cab, it just falls into place, the whole tightness and spectrum of it. And um, even like when I wasn't as seasoned at getting guitar tones, notch EQ can completely change a guitar tone. Like notch EQ can also ruin a guitar tone. You know, you just like do heaps of it. And it just like turns into like a comb filtered mess. It sounds all hollow and shit. But if you do it tastefully, you can take like this unclear guitar to make it like this thing that's just in your face, like instantly. And it's just like, I can't, I can't teach anyone that. It's literally just trial and error. But like, that would be the main thing is EQ after the fact to make it sit tight rather than just, you know, like high pass, low pass, a boost and a cut here and then just rolling with it. It's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> Dig deep and just like cut out shit that's messy. And like when you cut something and you like bypass and unbypass, you know whether it's a good move or a bad move straight away. Because like as you're cutting like that, it just gets, it either gets closer to you like in your face or gets further back and mushy and then you know what to undo and what to redo but like in recent years i haven't had to do that as much just because i've gotten better at what i do but um and it's also just like people not trying to mic up stuff or not researching it and just micing it up shits out of phase and they don't care they think that's how they mic an amp it's like nah like, there, there is science to it as much as there is creativity. Like, when I mic up an amp and a cab, I usually do dual cabs and dual amps at the same time. And I'm, like, micing that shit for, like, two hours. I'm sending, like, little clicks and blips to check phases of microphones and all that. I'm doing all that. And once that's all nailed, then I can start, like, doing actual tone stuff. Like, it takes a while. But um, once you get there and you have like six or seven microphones all in phase with each other and you can just mess with the blend and then record it down, like that's, you know, that's what finding a guitar tone is. It is not just chucking a 57 on a cab and recording it. Like that is not, that's not it. <laughs> as much as that can sound good, I mean, the 57 
recordings that you have heard that are amazing and you think are sick have also had hours spent in finding that tone. You cannot just whack a mic on a cab and think it's good because it is not, I can assure you. <laughs> For sure. Well, yeah, it's 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 attention to detail, right? And you're right. Like even that those recordings that are typically just a 57, it's like to get it sounding right, you had to find the sweet spot on the speaker and you had to yeah, you know, get like, the right tone with it. That's not... Like, that's not quick at all. Like, when I decide what to even mic or what to do, I set up the main amp, well, what I think is going to be the main amp, usually my 5150 because that thing is just the bomb. I set that up, put it through the cab, put a 57 on dead center of the first speaker, record a passage, do the second speaker, dead center, record a passage, do the third and the fourth. And then I do left, bottom, right, and top of the dust cap to see which section is best in that speaker that I've chosen. Find that section and then repeat that with all the other microphones. That's like an hour and a half right there. And then I have to make that all in phase with each other. And then I can start fiddling with the amp knobs and all that, changing mic levels and all that. It takes ages. And it's like, it's a labor of love for sure. And when you get to the end and it sounds sick, it's just, yeah, it pays off big time. Yeah, it's like the the big reward at the end of it all. That makes a lot of sense. Like, you know, when you're spending that much time on it, you're you're gonna get the right sound so so for you a lot of the tightness is really more to do with the tone of the amp rather than like you know the way you track things in terms of like i don't know if you track things like section by section or like well yes and no it's it definitely needs to be like the best di box or whatever that you can afford it needs to be edited to the grid like almost 100 percent I'm not going to say 100% because I've done that before. It's not as sick as almost, but if you're just like recording a passage and then going to the next one without editing or anything, like, nah, it's not going to happen. Like, that's not tight enough. Like, you need to go in and dissect it a little bit. And then, like, all those things in unison together create, you know, guitar left and guitar right, just this, like, wall of sound performance. Like, if I, could, if I could, like, reamp a song that was unedited and not paid that close of attention and reamp that same song completely edited, like, it would just feel tighter instantly in, like, frequency and dynamic, straight up. It'd be a night and day difference. Yeah. So then when you're tracking guitar, you know, you, talked, you just talked about finding the sweet spot with the mics and all that kind of stuff. Is that more of a thing that's happening in the reamping stage? Like, how 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 concerned are you with tone at the beginning of the like when you're just recording things, or are you just taking direct signal only at, at the at the start of it? I do A B guitars for sure. Find the best guitar, and then I just roll with it. Like what I'm the tone that I'm tracking with is not, you know, it doesn't it doesn't affect the end product of what I reamp, and like the bands these days are so particular about their tones that you couldn't possibly settle on a tone during tracking and track a whole album with that. There might be some bands that respect you enough to let you do that, and that would be sick. Like, that's cool. You know, you don't have to reamp later. You're just rolling with it. It's a bit of a rock vibe, you know. 
but that's just not the reality now. And that's also a direct correlation with how fussy a band wants to be. You can know that pretty early on as well. And I make the decision to reamp or use plugins based on that as well. Like when you reamp, it takes ages. And if you send the mix off to the band and they don't like the tone, you've got to do it again. But there's some bands that just trust you to know that that tone's good. They don't have a preference. They just want you to do what you do. And that sticks. But you can usually tell that band like straight away. You can tell if they're going to be like that. So that dictates if I reamp or if I use plugins also. It's, yeah, there's a number of factors that come into it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's 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 cool to hear. I, I like hearing stories about people who are just taking like a DI signal up front and then, you know, doing the work and like tightening it all up and then reamping it after the fact, you know, because there are, there are still a lot of people who are like the, the purists that it's like, yeah, you got to get the right tone. You put up a 57 in front of a cab and you record that and you don't process it afterwards. You don't do anything afterwards. So no. <laughs> <laughs> there's but a tiny place for both, right? Yeah, but it's even a different sound tracking with a committed tone because that committed tone gets all the cuts. It gets all the fades. Even like chuggy breakdowns and stuff, the closing of the hand and stuff like that, it's completely different on an amped track rather than a reamped track. Like if you reamp, you can design all those cuts. You can make them in time with each other. You can make them not noisy. You can replace them and all that. But you wouldn't necessarily find that out with an amp track. You would just do like this short fade on the end of it and just roll with it. Like because you're in the moment, you're tracking, you're on you're on the clock. That's what you're there to do. You're not there to be a nazi about the guitar tone while you're tracking. You're just trying to get the best performance out of someone. But like reamping after the fact, you can monitor the DI, you can check it out, you can make changes to it whereas yeah, committing to an amp tone you can't do that. I think it's I don't know which is better. They're both different. I think like reamped is obviously way longer. It's way more effort, but people are just not going to settle on a tracking tone. No way. And I know from the albums that I've done, even with the plug-in tracking tones, like you're rocking it. You're like, oh yeah, this plug-in sounds all right. And you know, you're going to reamp later and you reamp and it absolutely destroys it. Like your ears just like settle into it, even if it's not that good. That's funny. It's really funny when you figure that out. I always do a bounce of the tracking tone when I reamp so I can A-B it and yeah, you blow it out of the water every time. It's so easy to do. <laughs> it's kind of like a blessing and a curse that we can edit things as much as we can now, right? Because it's like, you know, you, it now makes everything so much longer and, you know, more tedious in a lot of ways. But the reward at the end of it is worth it all. Well, you, like no one's heard stuff this good. You know, it's truly like a, a pioneering time, especially in metal music where stuff is just the best it has ever been. You know, like you can't, like sure, records from 10 years ago, 20 years ago, they got a sick sound, but they're not on this level. And that is because of technology and just being over obsessive with stuff. People are just like doing way sicker things now. Even the old dogs from back in the day, they're even going crazy. They're getting way better. Well, they have to like, because awesome. that's just what the sound is now, right? Like, Well, it's just what everyone strived to do also. Like, it just inadvertently happened. Th I mean, that that is the thing with audio production is that as 
things evolve, as people's skill sets evolve and we get better and bigger and better tools, it's like, you know, people are going to use those. So to not use them is such a disservice to the songs and to, you know, people expect a certain sound these days. Right. And it's like, you know, if you if you were to think of like Metallica putting out the Black Album, you know, today, people would be like, this is this is garbage. It doesn't fly. Yeah. <laughs> it does not fly. But right. even like with audio progressing like that, even songwriters have started to write super hard stuff and there's diamonds in the rough that can play that hard stuff. Like there is not many players that I've met who write their music and can just like destroy a whole minute of it in one take. It's only one guy that I've tracked that can do that. And it was just like, you just watch it and go, what? Like, you're playing that whole passage flawlessly and, like, it barely needs any timing edits and you're just gobsmacked. You know, this kid's just a fucking... He's crazy. He just sits there for hours a day practicing his own music and comes in to record and destroys it. I remember, like, even when he came to recording, he was like, oh, I'm a bit nervous, you know, I've been practicing a bit. Like, I just want to get, you know, level up for recording. I was like, yeah, dude, I'm sure you'll be fine. And then comes in, just blows me away. I got to shout that out. That is Ethan McCann from Thornhill. Absolutely monster guitarist. That's awesome. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> it's kind of funny. It's like musicians that actually have the talent to to record their parts perfectly. Like, that's so, that's so rare. <laughs> it is. It is. But that's also like, that's also affected by writing in the studio like writing on the spot you have no chance to practice stuff you sort of like have to grind it out bit by bit to get a good take and then you know six months down the line when the album's out then the band actually nails it but that's just not a reality of today especially when deadlines are looming too you just can't practice to get the best performance out of everyone you just have to like slug it out and use your tracking techniques to create the best performance. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it, it's t- kind of to tie together with your, um, to tie in with the reamping discussion. Um, I know that you have a website where you sell like Kemper packs and drum sample packs and all that kind of stuff. How important are those tools to you in your productions? Like, are you using the Kemper a lot these days? Or are you still doing real amps? Like, h- how do you use those tools? I, I don't use the Kemper. I had one for a fair while. And, like, even the same with the Axe Effects, they just have a sound to them. And, like, I can almost pick it out when I hear it. You know, sometimes it's more obvious than others. But it also doesn't react like an amp reacts. It's sort of... Either of them are a snapshot of what an amp is and that particular amp. But that amp... You know, say I have a 5150 profile from whoever on the camper and I'm playing through it. It doesn't mean that that amp sounds like my amp at all. Like, they are completely different anyway. So, the Kemper can never nail it. And I don't think any piece of software can ever nail the changes in amps either. But, but like, a, a real amp with cab and mic'd air, like the air actually pushing against the mic and all that, it's just a different sound altogether. It's a different thing. And, like, for some reason, it just fits in a mix better. Like, analog to digital, analog just seems to work. I don't know what it is. It's like the human human feel, but in dynamic and frequency. It's a different thing. But Kemper and Axe effects are sick. That is, that is a fact. 
Kemper is more like an amp, but Axe Effects is like the, it's like reverbs and delays absolutely dominate. That shit is like better than any plugin you could ever have. That is a powerful tool for, yeah, like processing stuff after the fact. The amps in that are cool too, but I feel like they, the Axe Effects has such more of a pronounced sound than the Kemper also, like you can tell straight away. And it's even, I've found that the Axe Effects sound is on the input stage, like it's your DI, like when you plug into the front of the Axe Effects, from there to inside the Axe Effects is where you get the Axe Effects sound. Like you can use the Axe Effects in a loop or whatever, and you don't get the Axe Effects sound. It sounds like a a transparent piece of gear. <coughs> but when you go in the front, that's when you get the Axe Effects sound. Kemper just has like this dynamic thing that seems to be the same on every profile. And I've found with the Kemper, if you profile with an overdrive in your chain, it does not profile as well. I don't know what it is. I feel like the the blips and stuff that it does when it profiles get compressed by the overdrive and it doesn't do it as well. But profiling with no overdrive definitely makes the profile better. But um you know, I did those packs because people were asking. It still sounds like my tones. Absolutely it does. And you could definitely use it in a mix. I definitely could. Like the examples that I posted of those, they sound sick. There's no denying it. So it's a tool for people to use to get their sound a bit better. <laughs> and people seem to be happy. They're like posting about it, commenting, sending me messages about it. And that's sick. Like people are stoked on it. So it must be good. <laughs> <laughs> Those kind of things help people get to a certain sound faster, which is why I think people love the campers and the X effects and all that kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. And there's lots of bad sounds out there too. Like you can buy a camper pack and think that the people did it is sick, but can be completely misled by the sounds. It might sound dreadful. And I've done that before. I've bought camper packs and just gone, what is this? Like I've wasted my money right here. But also a thing I've found with the Kemper, you know, everyone has a preference of tone and the best profiles that you can have are the profiles you make yourself. Yeah, because that's your own performance. It's, it's your, your own thing. sound, right? Yeah. yeah. It's your sense. opinion put into a profile. Yeah. It's funny, like I, I recently got a Kemper and, you know, I've got like a thousand different sounds in there right now and I probably only use like 10 maybe, you know, like <laughs> it's good for a fiddle. Absolutely good for a fiddle. And the, the new software is pretty sick too. It's like a plugin, but it's a Kemper. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, so do you feel the same way as you do with like guitars where you're talking about having the real air and movement? Do you feel that same way when it comes to drums? Like, do you prefer live real drums as opposed to program stuff? Nah, you, you can have both. And, you know, like, there's dudes who be like, oh, this is 100% real. And it's like, yeah, power to you. But you can have both and still be happy. You can have both and be better also, you know. Like, samples do things that real drums don't in a way. Like, and especially how you stack it as well can completely change it. For a general rule, when I record real drums like maybe 50 to 75% of it is actually real in the final mix. Like, sure, I could get there with 100%, but I just don't need to. Like, no one needs to do that. I can add a sample that does something different 
that I get something out of. It's like the it's like the video I posted the other day on Instagram showing like the snare ping trick where you just add a, a pingy sample and it makes a part sicker. I couldn't do that with just real drums. So that would have been a way less sick session if I was just a purist about it and gone, oh, I only use real drums, blah, 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 blah. It's like, nah, stuff that. I can have both. <laughs> <laughs> and samples for rooms is like, yeah, it's the best shit ever. Like room mics in a live drum kit are just plagued by cymbals. And the processing you have to do to get it to be in your face and not have these cymbals just sound like this background piece of air is so extensive. You can use massive CPU hog plugins and it just bogs you down. You can spend hours doing it. But if you just like get samples of the kit or a different kit that you like, chuck it on kick, snare and toms, you're there. You don't need to do any of that. And it's convincing. Like, it's not in your face, so you don't know that it's replaced. Like, you can't hear that it's, like, right there and not hit by a person. It's like a reverb. It's the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, the samples just help you get the result faster and potentially cleaner or easier. Yeah, 100%. And you can have both, so why just do one or the other, you know? Like, if you're going to the trouble to record live drums... Yeah, it would be sick if you got the most out of them, but it doesn't mean it sounds the best. And I can guarantee that real drums plus samples sounds better than just real drums all the time. Yeah, I, th- I think there's there's certain genres where, you know, real drums is pretty much the only way to go about it. Like, I don't know if you're talking about like an old like jazz record or something like that. But like if you're talking about like modern rock music, you, you need you need those samples there. It's the only way to cut it through in like a metal mix or rock mix, right? And you even see like dudes like Eric Valentine and stuff like that. You know, they've done like some of the biggest rock records in history and they're using samples. (laughs) Like they don't care. You know, you see them on YouTube just doing their videos and they're like, oh yeah, there's a sample here and there. And they don't give a shit. Like that's how they got that sound and that's it. But like, yeah, live drums is good a lot of the time but there's also times when the drummer sucks <laughs> and then that's a whole nother that's a whole nother set of issues yeah it, it's sort of like the uh the idea of reamping the guitars right where like you start off with a good foundation and then you make it a lot better in post yeah that's it but if you don't have the good foundation don't bother yeah like if your drummer sucks don't record real drums <laughs> and be and be honest about it too like shit there's so many bands that i see like oh we're gonna do real drums and i'm in the back of my head thinking you should not <laughs> don't worry about it like it's a lot of money just stop it's harsh but it's a reality so then how do you approach those kind of bands do you just say like you know what like i think we're better just programming these or you know what's your what's your approach there i'm lucky to have not been in the situation to make that decision He's like the band, like I only really track the bands that I'm super tight with, like I'm good friends with, I tour with them or whatever. Other than that, I don't really have the time, especially in tours and stuff like that. So I have to push people onto, I have to push bands onto other people for tracking or whatever. So, you know, it's happened a lot with that. Some mixing, like people asking me about mixing and stuff, they say they're going to do something. I'm like, eh, you know. Okay. I mean, like, I don't want to get myself in that situation and tell people they can't do something because any, like, negative bearing on the relationship is not good. Sometimes you just have to suck it up 
and do sneaky shit after the fact. It's like it's like retracking someone who played guitar badly. Every engineer ever has done it, but they don't talk <laughs> about it. What are you talking about? Never, never done that. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> it's a thing. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's the same deal. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Well, listen, man, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but um, if people want to learn more about you and follow you online, what's the best way for them to do that? Follow me on Instagram, just Lance Prince, just my name, and uh, and Facebook. Just chuck me an ad and I'll accept. I'm not scared of anyone. <laughs> <laughs> just add me and we can talk. But, awesome. Um, yeah. Awesome, man. And uh, lastly, any cool projects that you're working on right now that you can talk about? Um, I'm not working on too much right now because of COVID, but, uh, I might do some more drum sample stuff soon. Might make a contact library or something. Um, but Alpha Wolf are releasing their new album this month. I think on the 25th, in my opinion, that's my best work to date. So I'm excited for that to come out and for everyone to hear it. That's awesome. I'm looking forward to checking that out. Yeah, it should be sick. Right on, man. Well, thank you again for taking the time to do this today, and I really appreciate it. I, I had a lot of fun chatting with you, and it was cool to get some some insight into what you're doing in, in your productions, and it's you're, you're doing awesome work, man. Oh, thanks for having me. First podcast ever. woo Wicked. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Mike. So that was my interview with Lance Prince, and that was a really fun interview to record. I loved hearing about how he approaches guitar tones and, you know, how he really pays attention to the details when it comes to miking an amp and really spending the time to get the sound right. And I uh, love hearing that approach. And I also thought it was really fun to hear about how he clips his drums and how that's such a big part of his sound and what his process is with that. I think that that's something that really helps makes his mixes punch real hard and give them a lot of energy and uh, it's definitely something you're going to want to try in your own mixes as well so Lance if you're listening to this thank you so much for being on the podcast really appreciate it and would love to have you back at some point now for you the listener if this is your first time listening to the Master Mix podcast make sure to subscribe to this podcast and that way every time we release a new episode you'll get notified right away and be able to check out the interviews and also, if you haven't checked it out already, visit MasterYourMix.com. And on that website, I'm currently giving away a free download. It's called The Ultimate Mixing Blueprint. It's a free guide to using EQ and compression in your mixes. It's like an EQ cheat sheet. So you can very quickly find the important frequency ranges that you need to pay attention to and what to boost, what to cut. And that's going to help you get results much faster. So once again, check that out, MasterYourMix.com. And when you're on the website, you're going to see a pop-up come up and you can download it for free. All you got to do is enter your email address and I'll send it your way. So that's it for today's episode, guys. Hope you really enjoyed that and I look forward to talking to you in the next one. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at masteryourmix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit masteryourmix.com. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast.